welcome to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, the voice for women in midlife and beyond. At Hot Flashes and Cool Topics Podcast, we talk about anything and everything to do with midlife. My name is Colleen. My name is Bridget. And today we have on Ginger Z. And right now you're probably going through your brain, Ginger Z, I know that name, I know that name. And Ginger Z is the chief meteorologist for Good Morning America. So you see her every day, bright and happy, telling you what you can expect with your weather. So you see her skydiving and doing all these crazy things because she loves the adventure. But she has recently wrote a second book called A Little Closer to Home, which talks about her mental health. She was very honest in her first book about her mental health challenges. She checked into a facility in the very first sentence of the book. So you knew that she was going to be honest and, and really forthright. And she's on a mission to open the conversation for people with mental health issues and to find ways to get them help. So we were really excited to talk to her today. Oh, yes. It it was just really amazing. She is, let's go of everything is very vulnerable in the book, talks about some really serious and horrific things that happened to her in her life and how she has sought help, just help her heal in that and what she is still doing in order to heal. And it was really refreshing too, to hear how much the family at Good Morning America just surrounded her because she was very nervous about this. She said, I have to do it. I have to open up. I have to help other people. And she was concerned that she would lose her job, but that is not what happened at all. They just really seem to surround her with love and support. And it's so important that other people that have gone through this will not feel alone. I know I say that a lot, but there is something about feeling that you aren't the only one that this happened to and that you see someone else out there that has gotten through it and they're healing. And you see someone who is very successful like Ginger Z. And I think people need to understand when we say her mental health issues, she has attempted suicide twice. She has been raped twice. She was in an emotionally abusive relationship, which she talks a little bit more about in the first book. The second book, she talks about the divorce of her family and how that affected her. She talks about how the rapes and the attempted suicides affected her. She also had an abortion as a result of one of the rapes. You know, she's very honest and that's what we need. We need to open the dialogue and to destigmatize mental health. She talks about finding a good therapist and how the relationship with her husband was really the first healthy relationship that she's had. And she's very honest. She's been in a lot of relationships But this one seemed to be at the right time and she wanted to be better for the relationship. We appreciate that she is so open because we all have things in our past. I don't think you get to this stage of life without having things in your past that have redirected your journey and really, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And she is living proof of that. Definitely. Today is going to be the first part in a two-part conversation with Ginger Z. We had so much to talk about that we divided to split this into two. And the next episode will be up on Friday. So it will be a bonus episode. So we hope you listen to that. Make sure you are subscribing so you don't miss the next episode.
please remember also that we have a newsletter that comes out bi-weekly. It will be out this Thursday. And in that newsletter, it's not just about the episodes. We are talking, you know, February Heart Health, Black History Month. We have book recommendations. We have news and noteworthy things. We have some amazing articles on menopause that are going to be in there. And we really want to create a community through this newsletter. So if you'd like to join the community, it's growing very quickly. Please make sure to go to Hot Flashes, Cool topics.com and a pop-up will appear. Just put your email in that and you will receive the next newsletter. So let's let Ginger do the talking and here we go. Welcome back to Hot Flashes and Cool Topics, everybody. Today we have on an amazing guest, Emmy Award-winning meteorologist. She's actually the chief meteorologist for ABC News, and she re- reports every morning you see her in Good at Good Morning America, Ginger Z. Welcome to the show, Ginger. Thank you so much. I am so looking forward to it. Let's get some hot flashes and cool topics going. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. We are really excited to talk about your new book and and kind of mix your old book a little bit in with it. But inquiring minds want to know from the very start, you have two small children. How do you get, first off, what time do you get up every morning to do Good Morning America? And two, how do you do that? Well, to give you an idea of what happened by midweek uh, last night, I fell asleep while watching a movie with the kids and my amazing husband, I will use that adjective today, allowed me to keep sleeping. And that is the only time I ever get the proper amount of sleep is when I fall asleep prior to my children, <laughs> which is obviously not possible most nights. And so um, I got almost eight hours last night, which I think is because I was getting so little leading up to that. But anyway, wow. I'm not normal. I usually get up somewhere between 345 and 4, 415 if I'm sleeping in. Um, and then, you know, get up, get ready, do all my things for GMA. So it's, I've been doing morning shows for now 20 years exactly. And I cannot tell you that it ever feels good. You know, there's never a point where you go, you know what? Yeah, that was right. <laughs> So you're just constantly tired. And then to mix in two kids, that's just, you know, if they're up in the middle of the night, does your husband help you and get up in the middle of the night? Oh yeah. Oh my gosh. But thankfully they, Miles was not as great of a sleeper as the older one Adrian was, but Adrian's been a fantastic sleeper. I can't complain. Um, And, you know, they do the once in a while nightmare and thing, but but that hasn't been too big of an issue. It's more the mornings on the weekend, the one morning that I get to sleep in. And I just, right by me, it's that creepy mommy. And then I look and it's, it's five 30 and I'm like, Oh, I mean, it would have been nice to make it to the six on the clock, but yeah, whatever. Good morning, oh buddy. <laughs> oh, we are so excited that you came on to talk about your new book, which is a little closer to home. And it's, you wrote a book a few years ago called natural disaster. And you were very honest about some mental health struggles and your life story. And then in this book, you went even deeper into mm-hmm. your family history, your history. And I think for the listeners, they see you smiling on Good Morning America every morning, happy, energetic. But like most women who have hit, you're just at the baby steps of midlife. You've <laughs> lived a life that's had positive and negative struggles and triumphs. And you're very honest about that. Why did you feel the need to write the second book and go a little deeper into your life story? I saw what the first book did and I didn't anticipate that. And that was actually change people's lives. And I'm not saying that in a, in a, you know, the farthest thing from humility way, I'm saying it because I get messages still today that say your book saved my life. And I did not 
anticipate that. And I thought, well, if I only told them what I told them there and that helped that much, imagine what I can do. And I almost take it as my responsibility because I have the privilege of being able to be financial, financially able. I have the family support and I have the access to the therapy that helped me heal. So it's my job, I think, to do this and to at least start talking about how you heal and how healing is a lifelong journey. And that's what this book became about was, okay, I know that there are traumas in my life that I, and we all have trauma, but I know there are some traumas in my life that I have not gotten into even deep enough. And so with my therapist, I took a real focused look at recovering from trauma, uh, healing from it, and then the maintenance of healing. And, And that's what I wanted this book to be about because I think just saying that, like we talk about stigma, people talk about, you know, and, and I do think it's getting better. I think there's a bigger stigma on the action of where do you go? What do you do? And how long do you go? You know, it's like one thing to say, yeah, you know, I see a therapist. I think we're all okay with that. But when I say I went to the hospital, everyone's like, something was very wrong with you. Right. I'm like, yes, it was. And now it's not. And I think that's where I want it to, to change. So that's what the second book is really about. I've seen people who, you know, like you said, everybody deals with trauma. And I feel like when something traumatic happens, a lot of people feel like they don't have the time to deal with the trauma. Yeah. And, well, and they don't they, want yes, to. Yeah. You don't want to. And it's it's almost like you're, you're compartmentalizing it and you're putting it away. Mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for someone that maybe about how soon you should deal with it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it, if it's something that you can take care of right away or wait till you just feel like you yourself personally can process it. I think it's the sooner the better. Um, it, it's going to be different for every person, just like everybody grieves differently, but you do have to grieve from tr- trauma. And, and this is what was so evident in my life as I went around to everyone's natural disaster. And I've been to everything from Katrina on. I was in this unique position of showing up and being the first person these people talked to when they lost everything. And to watch how humans react for the most part is pretty similar. And this is how I think how, how trauma works as well. You, you have the shock stage, which, you know, that you, you can't penetrate really. You're going to be in shock for different amounts of time. Um, and then with a natural disaster, it's a little tougher to turn around and try to run away and ignore it because your house isn't there and you have nowhere to live. So you kind of have to face that. Um, so you, I do think that people process disaster faster and probably in, in the, the best way because they, they have to. The after effects of it, that's up to the individual and I think could be worked on considerably. But I think if we look at it like a tornado hit our house and imagine it like that and say it is time to not just find a safe place, which is what you need to do probably first, open up and talk to people, which is the most important part. Then you have to, because saying it, putting words to it is the beginning of rebuilding that is the beginning of saying, okay, I'm clean, or or it's the cleanup, it's the debris removal. And then it's going into the, you know, how people, when I see that shock, they kind of in that zombie stage, then the next day or the day after it starts to settle in the reality of it. And it gets really scary and sad and, and, and they're angry, frustrated, or sad. You kind of go through that point in it. And I'd say the most important thing for someone in trauma is to allow that say, this should be angry, frustrating, and sad. Feel anger, feel frustration, feel sadness, feel it all, and tell people that you feel this way. Because once you told that person, hey, this trauma happened to me, you already opened the door. Now you 
now you can tell them how you feel about it. And that's then the cleaning, right? After the debris removal, I think that's the cleaning. And now it's about the rebuilding. And I think it's how do you heal and how do you create this life that's going to go on with that as part of your story. You're never going to be able to not have the tornado hit your house again. You're never going to be able to not have that trauma have happened to you. So how do you take ownership of the trauma and keep it as part of your story? Not that you need to ruminate on it, you know, but just say, this is who I am. And this is part of who I am. Now what, you know, what, what did I learn from it? And I think that's where the more talking, it's a lot of it's talking. <laughs> yeah. I love the, I love the analogies. That was a, a great way to put it together. When you are talking about taking ownership and you certainly have, you talk about yourself in the third person a lot. You know, you talk about Renee, which is your middle name and disaster ginger. And you're very honest about um, some experiences of rape and suicide. Do you think that not taking ownership from a very young age kind of snowballed that into your suicide attempts? Absolutely. But I think that for the longest time, it really was about my my lack of identity fusion, the lack of me being able to know who I was and who, if that person deserved life. And if that person does, you know, all of those, I was reading about how children process, um, differently. And, and I always talk about my oldest being very much like me. He was just born a perfectionist and how I can help him. And I've heard most of the things that I was reading, but then one of them stuck out to me, you know, after you model, how to be imperfect. It's how do you talk about it? And I've been doing it wrong. I've been kind of emphasizing that everybody makes mistakes too much. I think, I I think I've been really too focused on making it like teachery. And I think for him, it's more about the, the quiet modeling. And what I'm going to try is the, the reverse. And that is finding times in the positive to build your identity in the positive way and focusing on that instead. So when he, you know, has a, that makes a bad choice, remind him that globally one bad choice does not make your entire life. You're a bad boy. Right. And I think that's something that I could have benefited greatly from. And I think every child can help, you know, be helped, especially if they are not having a fused um, parental or extended family, um, teaching them how to do that. I wish we could teach every kid how to regulate their emotions based on this moment. This choice does not define, doesn't even define the rest of the day, let alone the rest of your life or who you are. And I think that's something I really wished I would have done. And to add to the analogy of the storm, what has helped me heal even more after writing these books and what I'd love for people to get, you know, at the end of a, if I'm at a storm area for three, four days. By the end, you start hearing the cliche and then the community came together and it's so beautiful what, you know, and it's like, I get so annoyed by that, but it's because it's true that you have to tell that story. The absolute best comes out of these people that share trauma. So if you share trauma and the healing, that's what being open and being in a group of people saying, oh my gosh, I had that too. That tornado was in my life too being rape, being something else like that. And that community of mental health is something that I think is going, hopefully can change the world. And you talk about, you know, I know you say your, your parents, they did the best they could. They, they sound like great people, but you are a child of divorce and the whole custody situation for you and your brother is insane. (laughs) I've never, so did you have to, I know that you said you had to like half the year with your mother and half the year with your father? Was that out of school districts? 
Yes. Yeah. Different school districts always. It was, um, my father lived uh, always within like 30 minutes, but I don't know why, but that they made that feel like it was four hours. Like it was very hard. Like if I forgot something, a project at my mom's house, they're like, I'm not driving over there. Right. <laughs> it's just too bad. Uh, remember it next time. So I think as a kid, and it did feel like four hours because 30 minutes does feel like you're so, so far away when you're seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years old. Um, but our custody agreement was so wild. And I understand that the idea is that my dad worked, he had his own business in construction and summer was when he had the most work. So that was not going to be the time we were with him. So he still wanted to have us. And so we would move on Christmas day after wake, waking up at my mom's and celebrating Christmas in the morning, we would take our suitcases and bags and move to my father's house on Christmas every year. And you talk about jarring for our kids, you know, although the weird part is that was the only part we knew how to expect. Well, we are moving to dad's today. So then you move there for the next three months. And then on Easter, we would move back to my mom's. And then once a week and every other weekend, we would be at whosoever house we were not at. Wow. Yeah. I I mean, and I understand, like, I know custody can be difficult. I see my friends now who are divorced. I've got one particular friend I'm enamored by how well they're doing divorce. And, you know, it was her husband, her ex-husband moved into the same neighborhood and she was like, this is weird, but it's like the best for, for her daughter because her daughter can walk to dad's house. They may, they're making choices that make it as doable as possible. Divorce is going to happen. It's inevitable. This is part of life, you know, but like make it less traumatic for everyone especially your child. And I think that's something that we've learned a lot since the eighties. And I, I always ask people like anybody, any child of the eighties that was a part of a divorced family, tell me somebody that did it right. Crickets. Like it was not, <laughs> nobody knew yeah. how to do it. No one knew. Yeah. And, and now we just have a lot more and we're open, you know, it became, it did become a community of divorce, I think. And it was kind of like, how do we do this better going forward? Yeah, you you answered that question for me. For me, I was going to say, what would advice would you give uh, people going through it, and also just what you had to go through with each, each of your parents having more children in their new relationships, and how that made you and your brother feel, and I'm sure that had to contribute to what happened later for you. You know, oh my gosh, I mean. Yes both in good ways and bad. And that's the other thing I have. Um, my best friend, Brad, who's part of the first book, chapter seven, he always likes to be referred to as, um, he always says, do you think that if you had kind of that fused love, you would be as successful as you are? Cause maybe you wouldn't, you know, he likes to try to spin it yeah. <laughs> as it drove me. Um, I'm like, well, like, I, I hope so. But yeah, I don't think that that's, I don't think it's necessary to stress your children so that they achieve. But, um, I try to look at the positives of what happened when my parents remarried and had children. And I think just, it was just an age thing that I was 14 and then a baby was born every year. And so now being a parent and understanding what it takes to have an infant and have a new family, I say new family, but yes, a new family. Um, And then how a teenager perceives that because they're the center of the universe or they're supposed to be right. I think that was such basic psychology that both my brother and I were like, where's a microphone? Somebody please listen to me. Somebody pay attention to me. And both in my romantic relationships, my friendships, and especially my, that my drive to stand on a stage somewhere and have people listen to the thing that I'm passionate about. It, it was 
both good and bad. I think it would have been nice to have had that, but they wouldn't have known to do it any different. Again, this is not today. Right. You know? Right, and, I look at, right. and I don't blame them. And the one thing that we've worked on a lot, and I, if parents are listening here and they still haven't had a lot of conversation about it, I think what happened to us is they got divorced. They didn't speak for 12 years. That meant that none of us spoke about divorce or what it felt like or what it was, because it was kind of just the taboo topic that you don't do. And they really did not like each other. And that was evident. And then as we became adults, there were other kids and we really didn't have time to talk about that because they didn't have time for anything. And we didn't talk about it. And all I think my brother and I really needed and what has been so healing for me is to have them say, I'm sorry that was hard on you. And it took me writing a book and talking to my mom about it to get to that place. But that's what I think that's all I needed. And 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 for me to forgive her because she felt extreme guilt and she still does, you know, and, I, and I'm trying to work with her on that. It's not about feeling guilty. We can't go back and erase the trauma. What we can do is say, here's how we'll deal with it going forward. And I loved having just you take ownership of it too. say that was hard. You never said it was hard and it was hard, you know, it's and, and it's hard to compare because then people will be like, OK, well, why don't you go spend some time in a refugee camp? Right. They try to always do this game of like my trauma is worse than it yeah. doesn't matter. You can't play that. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a we're all here and we're all doing our absolute best and we want to be loved and we want to love. And just I think that's it is the and then the communication is what really allowed for the healing. And now as I become a parent, I have really let them off the hook because I'm like, holy cow. <laughs> not so easy. Not so easy, right? Yeah. Not, even not so easy. I thought they had some sort of control or um, molding ability. And I don't know that that's true. <laughs> Only <laughs> no. to a certain point, right? Because I'm like, who is that kid? And how did he come out of? Yes. Mm-hmm. We have a completely different setup here. We have a very open, communicative. And my son is just like me. And I'm like, (gasps) yes. Yeah. Yeah. There, it, there's no magic secret. And, and I thought so too, when I was younger, you know, like my parents know everything and, and I'm like, oh, they didn't know everything. There's a, there's, there's a certain part where you realize your parents are human. It's around 18 or 19. And you're like, wait a second, you're human too. You make mistakes. (laughs) You know, it was only like five years ago. I realized there could be bad doctors or bad anything. Like that type of thought though, is where we pedestal people and our expectations of others is higher than even sometimes ourselves, which we don't realize we're doing. And we don't allow for human error for any error. That's wild to me. I still am like, or, or (laughs) we have a roofer and like, they did a terrible job. Right. And then how's their bad roofer? I guess I never thought like that. I just thought if you do a job, you do it to the best of your ability. Why would somebody, or why wouldn't they call us back? Do they not want to get paid? It's just, you know, I think that revelation of not just our parents, but of other people, um, and that that's how imperfect life is. And there will always be something as bad as you know, sexual assault, there'll always be something as bad as a, a, a bad doctor that doesn't see, you know, that just happens and we have to be ready. And that's why we're all here to work on it together. You also talk a lot about therapy. And I found this for myself and family members. The first therapist you go to may not be the fit for you. The fifth therapist you go to may not be the fit for you. And I see, I, I have this argument with my loved ones about well, therapy doesn't work for me and they just give it up. And could, you know, any advice out there for, for us to, for ourselves and us dealing with our loved ones saying, please 
keep going till you find your fit. I mean, well, any advice? Part of it, I would tell them, you're right, it's hard to find. So you give them the credit of saying, you're absolutely right, this is not going to be easy. It takes hard work. Just like it takes hard work to find a partner in life, right? I mean, I dated plenty before I was able to understand what I needed and before I was ready to know what I needed and was ready to be loved in the same way that I required to have just the right fit. And I think, I think there are more than, and I've spoken about this. It wouldn't be a surprise to my husband. Of course, there are more than one fits of, of partners in our life. Um, and sometimes we live through those, right. And people have that, but, and I think that could happen with therapists too, but I do think they're like a relationship first of all. And this is the problem I think with the mental health, um, any, the community of, of, of therapy it's set up. And my husband says it, it's like Tinder. What are you supposed to just go and look at people's pictures and kind of go, Oh, so they're kind of, they focus on anxiety. No, this, no, he's like swiping. And he thought this is the weirdest thing because then you're just going to be basing it on a picture and the demographic of who you think might fit with you and not, there is no, funneled place to find, okay, let me give, except for the emergency room, there's no funneled place to get a fast diagnosis so that you can get focused over here to the people who do DBT therapy, which would be best for borderline personality disorder or for X, right? And, and then that's the thing is we have primary care doctors for anything physical and they know who to refer you to. And they do, some of them have the training and the ability to refer you to mental. So we should think about them and ask them. Don't forget to ask your primary care doctor. But I think that there has to be this in-between because it's either I am so suicidal, I go to the ER, or I'm lost on Tinder, right? And everybody in between, there's no funneling place. And so my next dream is to take this, whatever has created or my purpose that has been created by these books. And just like Betty Ford made you know, the, the drug and alcohol addiction, kind of McDonald's of drug and alcohol addiction. We need that. We need the branded. I can go there. It's not the scariest place in the world, but they are going to help me and they're going to change my life. We need that place where even my husband, who certainly doesn't need ER help, but would like to find the right type of therapist can go and get focused help at a place that just works on that. And I was speaking to my therapist this week and he said, there is, that is not available. That is not, not on a nationwide scale. Um, and so that's, I'd like to change that because it shouldn't be this hard. And I have to add, I'm sorry, I'm just talking and talking. No, but no, no. It's good. It's Listen. so hard. It's so hard for people who are in that place, even my husband, to and your family members that are saying therapy's not for me. It's so hard for someone who is having one bad day and then, you know, maybe five, six days go by and it's okay. They're not going to be bringing themselves. You, but yet if you broke your leg, you would not expect that person to go walk themselves to the hospital. So this is our job as the team member or your job as, as the family member is to say, I know you think that, but I want to help you. I want to help set that up. Let me go look through that insurance thing. Because I know in my darkest times, I was not leafing through some sort of insurance book looking for the Tinder of, <laughs> it was too yes. hard. I couldn't even run my day. You think I'm going to go be able to look for the right therapist? So I think being open to realizing we need help. And, and then once we say we need help, not just kind of leaving it there, actually getting the help of rolling them all the way to the door. And, and yes. that's an important part. Mm-hmm. Couldn't agree more. Absolutely. I also wanted to, I think a lot of women listening can relate to the fact that when you did have a traumatic event in your life, you, you 
went through anorexia and I have a daughter who went through anorexia. So I know that what an emotional struggle that is. And then you went through some experiences with rape. You didn't shout out, I need therapy. I need help. You kind of compartmentalized them and you went on and almost drove harder in your life to achieve more saying, I'm going to put this over here on a shelf. But inevitably that kind of hit a wall when you attempted suicide. And I think a lot of women, especially of our generation, were taught, just keep going. Don't talk mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. Can you share some advice for them so that they don't get to that point where they think, I, I just can't deal with this anymore? Well, if yours is as bad as mine was, I was not only compartmentalizing, I was actively saying that didn't happen and then never speaking about it again. Not like a dirty secret that you're keeping. No, 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 it didn't happen like that denial of, you know, I don't even know. If, so I'd say if you, if you have something like that and you know, it's there, I would take time to go uncover the wound. I would go in there and, and clean it up and, and find out what was in there. And I thought not only writing, writing is the easiest inexpensive way to start doing that. And the safest, because unless you're worried about someone finding it and judging you on this, writing is a safe way to put words to what happened to you. And it's really important to do that. And then I think the next step is to share it with someone um, impartial. It can be a therapist, a pastor, um, someone that you can just, you feel you can open up to. It can be a stranger. You'd be pretty amazed. And I mean, a stranger who talks about mental health a lot or something, you know, amazed at the DMs I get of people coming to me and saying, I've told nobody this. And they're telling a stranger who they watched on TV talk about her book once. It's powerful though. It's powerful because I'm the first person they told, just like in that disaster, I'm the first person in their face that they're telling what they're feeling about. There has to be that first person. And it doesn't have to be your mom. Probably isn't going to be because that's where you're going to feel the most intimacy and connection. So it's a lot easier for even after writing these books, I find my family to be the quietest because they've read it. Most of the one, you know, certainly my mom read it and, and we, we worked on what she felt comfortable with and, but it's not her favorite topic to go back over. It's not her. But if I want to work on me and healing and all this, I can do it with my DM people. Well, here's how I'm feeling. Here's what I'm doing. There's a community beyond the people that are just right in your immediate family as well. And not to not forget about them. And then there's set up ones, right? The group therapies and the actual, you know, and I would highly recommend anything like that for different diagnoses. It can be even more powerful than one-on-one -on -one therapy sometimes because you're able to hear how other people are either at the beginning, middle or end of their journey or maintenance part of their journey. I never should say end um, and how they're maintaining. So I love that um, thought process of, of healing. You, you also talked about the fact in the book that sometimes you felt like, okay, I think I'm, I'm in a good place. I don't need therapy anymore. And you just said that it's kind of a continuum. Yes. That'd be like saying, okay, I went to a personal trainer for the last five years and I'm in sick shape. I'm good. I'm not going to go to the gym anymore. Right. That's yeah. not how it works. I think every single person should have access to and be committed to. And this is what's really changed my life is I flipped the energy, time, and money that I put into physical health to less than I put into mental health. So if I've got that extra, you know, people will say, oh, I blocked out an hour for my activity for my body, which is wonderful. You absolutely should do that. And there are mental um, positives on that too. Why haven't we done that for our brain? Why don't we take that hour 
or split it for a half hour and make it active yoga, you know, um, yoga, but active meditation and then a half hour of cardio. So thinking about our brain health first, foundational sleep, nutrition, and really making, I talk about like the, um, the food pyramid, but like the health pyramid, mine is mental health first. That's where I've spent everything. And then everything else is blocked on top of it. I like that. I, lo- I love these analogies that you're saying on every little thing. I'm thinking, what a great way to, it kind of just makes sense when you put this next to it, mm. saying the pyramid next to it. Yeah. And when you're talking about the disasters and the grieving process, I'm thinking, wow, <laughs> this just makes so much sense to me. So it's great. You, yeah. How When you checked yourself in, and it's like the first sentence of your first book that you checked yes. yourself into an inpatient facility. Did you feel relief when you did that? Was it a sense of, okay, I'm in a safe place now? Oh yeah. I mean, I was, I was so, I was in an abusive relationship. So a big part of me going there was to get away from him and to be safe. Yes. So in that way, absolutely. And what I realized within 24 hours of being there was who I was really running away from was me, you know, and that's who had the most power over the situation and wasn't doing it. And that is why I, went. I would, I didn't, I could have gone to get away from him for the last two years before that um, and should have probably, but what it really opened up was it relieved, it took away all of the power that I thought other people had and it turned it on the person who had the most. And that was me. And that's what I wasn't doing. I was a really so lost in myself that I was allowing all these outside voices, including, Oh, my parents did this. And, you know, um, he's doing this. I don't want to take away from what other people's influence on you. It is huge. But in the end you have the magic and the approval that I thought I was looking for from everybody, everybody from, you know, a viewer at the far reaches of Hawaii to Florida to my grandmother that approval was also something that I realized in the hospital I had to find in there. And you hear that all the time, but I think until it really, it really cracked me over the head by going to the hospital and realizing this was it, this is where I'm going to have to turn inward and look at the choices I've made or haven't made. Um, Look at the stories I've told myself, lied to myself, and I'm going to have to be honest now. And that honesty is what changed and rocked my whole life in the best way. And that's how I live now is, I cannot, even when something terrible happens, I cannot say it didn't happen. I can't just roll on to the next one. As much as it hurts and it pains me, I have to talk about it. And that has changed. And and thankfully, for some reason, I'm sure that this is all related. I've had far fewer of those things because I've put myself in places and surrounded by people that I'm honest with. And so it keeps, it does keep you safer without having to go to the hospital. It was almost a form of self-hate, right? Is to, to, to find people that can treat you even worse than you treat yourself. And that was, in retrospect, I understand what was happening. But And then the people who, my best friend, Alicia, who I talk about in both books, she you have to have a team where you have the person who's the unconditional support and love. You have to have the person who's going to be the action one, who's going to take you to the hospital. And you also have to have the person who's the tough love, who at a certain point says... I can't do this. I'm, I, I, can't, I don't even have the bucket to fill any longer to help you with this. And that moment that she said that to me was a big part of me checking and then having kind of a, a, you know, 
I actually had to look in the mirror and be like, wait, so my best friend since we were 12 is telling me that she will not be speaking to me any longer because I am so gone and she, and I I won't get help, you know, and she knew that I could go ahead. And now talking to her now, she'll say, I was so afraid that I couldn't do anything and you were going to lose your life. Either he was going to hurt you or kill you, or you were going to do it to yourself. And the pride she has now in, and, and, and the conversations we're able to have about me then um, are really, really powerful. And it makes our friendship even stronger. And I'm glad she did that. You know, mm-hmm. I think, I think so many people that are in the situation that you were in, just the flags that are there, but you sharing it just like, you know, removing you from your friends, insulting your family members mm-hmm. the way that he did. And I've seen that happen. I've oh. seen it happen to friends. So I've seen it. Better. Yeah, it, it is. It's so strange. Like original abusers. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. But, you know, it very, it, it's, it does not uh, discriminate against class or how smart you are or anything. It doesn't. I mean, you are a very smart person and it's, I see it happen to someone so smart, so intelligent, and you can't, it's like they have to see it for themselves, and it's so, it's frightening, just like your friend told you how frightening the situation you were in in your first book, you described it, where you were hiding under yes. a table, yeah, at a, I was, a hotel. I was intelligent in so many ways, but I was not emotionally intelligent, and I think that's mm-hmm. what was the hardest part, and I'm, abuse can can penetrate anything. Like you said, it really, you know, you could be an emotionally intelligent person and just have happened to come into this. And that is what an abuser does is they can manipulate anything. They're powerful. They're strong. They're wizards, you know, yeah. and that's the, that's the wild part. And looking back, I'm like, it feels like I was under a spell. How mm-hmm. did that happen? But, um, and I see it in other people now and I see it's just that we're all going and that's where we can help each other yes right is to step in and say in in whatever way is appropriate I'm seeing this and I know I'm not judging I'm not I believe me I know what it, that feels like and I know it's going to be up to you and you're going to have to get to that place but I'm scared and sharing how I feel about it versus what you should feel about it or what you should do it's just feeling and that's what she did so well and she in that moment is she did like classic psychology of saying I'm scared I don't want to I don't have enough energy because she had a brand new baby and I was like waking her up every night with a phone call scared of him. And then she turned it. I'm scared. And it was like, Oh, we are so thankful that ginger Z came on our show today and talked about just such important issues, mental health, um, how to deal with the suicide awareness when you feel as low as you could possibly feel. And just so thankful that she was you know, rescued and taken care of and that she has shared her story with other people. I just wanted to make a note that we'll have the link to the suicide hotline number in the show notes, but if you need it, it's 1-800-273-8255. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And that is the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. If you want to give them a call, please know that there is somebody that is always available on the other end. And if you want to catch this interview or any of our interviews, um, for the most part, a lot of them are on YouTube. Thanks for listening, guys. We will talk to you on Friday. Mm